Welcome to episode 52 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's first and only open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and we are back with another episode, which we hope will reach an audience far and wide. Tonight, we will be discussing the wide world of panoramic cameras. Medium format, 35mm, even 16mm panoramic cameras are on the agenda tonight. Before we get to that, though, let's welcome the rest of the Camerosity gang. First, from Yellow Springs, Ohio, is Mr. Paul Rival. I hear your camera inventory is getting kind of low, Paul. Are you at all concerned about having a wide selection? I have a broad selection, but uh, you know, I, I, I've reached the point now where I can actually see the floor of my house. So that means I need to, I need more cameras, Mike. Can you help me with that? From the road construction capital of Australia is Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. Hey, Theo, are they making the streets wider down there? No, unfortunately they're not. Otherwise I'll start cutting bits of houses out, but you know, they're contributing to the show by trying to make as much noise as possible outside my house right now. And finally, from the land of lizards, space shuttles, and hot coffee is Mr. Anthony Rowe. Hey, wait a minute. Don't you only shoot square format? What do you know about panoramic cameras? Just have to put enough of those squares together and pretty soon you, you get a panorama. All right, we have quite a few people, some exciting names, some repeat customers, a couple names I don't recognize uh, in the waiting room, so let's let them in. All right, as the Brady Bunch squares <laughs> in Zoom fill up the screen, we have a, a nice selection of people here. Lots of returning customers. Andrew Smith is back, Mark Faulkner, Ray Nason. Dean Blumberg. Dean, all the way from Johannesburg, is that right? Correct. But today right. I'm in Cape Town. Cape Town. That's still like the, tomorrow morning though, right? <laughs> it is tomorrow morning, yes. Awesome. See, told you far and wide. Uh, mm -hmm. We have Richard Diver. How you doing, Richard? Welcome back. I'm doing really well. Skip Williams. Welcome back, Skip. Marwan, welcome to the Hi, show. Hi, good morning. Well, it's good morning here. <laughs> so where are you calling from? Germany, next to Germany. Frankfurt. Awesome. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, but everybody else, uh, thanks for coming back. One, I, I thought a good spot to kind of get started maybe is what exactly is panoramic? Like at what point is it as an image panoramic? Is it anything wider than four by three or 24 by by 36? Uh, is six by nine panoramic or how far do you have to go before something is officially considered panoramic? Actually, can we throw that one to Dean? Because you're you're in filmmaking, aren't you, Dean? So yeah. there's there's a concept of the panoramic ratio in, in filmmaking, isn't there? There's a there's a little bit of it. It's a big debate. Obviously, formats have changed over the decades, but I think even though I think panoramic imagery has been around for, you know, since the beginning of photography, by modern standards, it begins with sort of the 50s and cinemascope where you've got filmmaking stretches beyond the four by three academy ratio, which is the typical ratio on a 35 mil piece of celluloid, which shrunk when they invented sound. So they put that in and you get the four by three academy ratio. So then TV takes on that four by three ratio and cinema competes with the cinemascope and you get this widescreen panorama. So I guess it is anything by today's standards and it's a big debate and people can disagree by today's standards it's anything that breaks probably the frame of four by three but even further than that i think it's even starting to break into anything 16 by 9 1 by 185 all those sort of formats begin to create widescreen because i think that the debate you probably want to have is is it widescreen 
a panorama because the panorama is almost pointing towards landscape photography or banquet photography versus what is a widescreen image. It's it's a it's again it's like the half frame debate. That's specifically why I wanted to, to relate it back to film because that that is that tension between watching a widescreen movie or or and the term panoramic gets used a lot as well. So you know where where does that fit in? I think it's more photography. I must be honest. I do, you don't really hear panoramic in the filmmaking world. Well, you know there 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 is. You're right, and I I agree with what you're saying. The the one I rec- the most glaring example of it to me was Walt Disney at Disney World back in the 70s and 80s had a, a 360 degree theater, and they were done. The the filming was done, I think, on 70 millimeter projectors, 70 millimeter cameras. And then projected in a 360 degree screen, and that that's like the ultimate panorama. The origins of it go back so far, and uh, one of the, the the biggest users of of uh, panorama type photography in olden times was what they call banquet cameras, um, which were actually just used to photograph a banquet uh, or a meeting or a group of people or something like that inside. And most of them were, I believe. Seven by 17, seven inches by 17 inches. Uh, and you still see a lot of those being shot today. Are banquet cameras the uh, same as a circuit camera? Or is that? No, the, the, circuit, the banquet camera was just actually one sheet of film that was okay. exposed at one time. And a circuit camera was a rotating camera itself that was on a clockwork type uh, uh, arrangement that it sat on. And, and it wasn't a moving lens. It was a moving camera. Was the circuit camera the one where you could... People would get on one side and run around. Yes, and get themselves yeah, twice. When I was in college, the, we had a, a guy lo- locally who came to do the class picture every year, and uh, I, I still have a picture somewhere—a circuit camera photograph of me on a motorcycle on each ends of the picture because I rode around behind him uh, after it had left me. So, if we're relating panoramic still photography back to motion Ooh. picture. The motion picture industry, right? Like, there's a whole bunch of aspect ratios. You got yeah one one to one. You have two dot three five to one. Ben Hur was in like what two point six or something to one or something crazy like that. When that gets translated to still photography, what what are we talking like? Where do we start? I I, I mean, you mentioned six by nine earlier. I personally wouldn't call that a panoramic agreed uh, shot. That that's that to me is it's wide, but it's not panoramic. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I think the start is like you know a two to one ratio, six by twelve, six by twelve and greater. Yeah, I think that's. I agree. That's. I think that's probably what most people would agree that it's 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 a two to one ratio, twenty four by forty eight for a thirty five millimeter frame, or like what's the X band twenty four by fifty six? Mm-hmm. No, sixty five. Twenty four by sixty five. Yeah. Well, that, that I mean, that's truly panorama. And uh, in, in motion picture history, you know, an exhibition, it was one to one eight five was was considered yes. widescreen. You know, where they actually yeah. had to like bring the curtains back and they had to have screens that were wider than they had prepared for previously. But you know, there's even an older history than that. Like uh, you, you can look back to the silent era, and you had a filmmaker like Abel Gantz in France who had done Napoleon, where for the climactic battle, he filmed it on three different cameras and the. Uh, uh, theaters had to set up three screens and three projectors, so it was actually three times the standard, uh, the old square frame to, to get the whole the whole film in. 
which is, is actually quite thrilling to see if you've ever, ever yeah. had a chance to see it live. But nobody has talking so far about um, angle of view because we're always talking True. about the format. We're talking about mm. um, what's the ratio. Um, if you just compare, and I think that's because we studied a lot the white logs idea. And um, mm. when we compare it to cameras like the Hasselblad X-Pan, if you just take the standard Hasselblad X-Pan with, the, I think it has a 45 millimeter lens on it. That's the most uh, people use or the 40 millimeter. And then um, the 90, 40 and 30. And you have a 30 millimeter one. And um, if you just, look at the angle you get the angle of view it's kind of like in the 30 millimeter it's around 90 degrees a little bit more than 90 which is if you compare it to a leica m with an extreme wide angle lens let's say a 15 or 16 millimeter it comes very close to that um but if we take for example the wide looks or we take an anoblex we come into an angle of 126 degrees, just angle of view, and in diagonal, 140 degrees. So that is totally different. You have a total different geometry, especially if you think about your personal human. I personally define panoramic if that exceeds or broadens my mind because it goes beyond what my normal view is. And I think just just the ratio, the aspect ratio is, I think, not really enough to define panoramic. One of the one of the examples is the Fuji G617, which is, you know, a six six by 17 uh, format, but it uses a 105 millimeter lens. So it isn't truly a wide angle lens. It's it's a it's a it's a panorama format. When they went to the GX617 with interchangeable lenses, then they put a that you could put a wider angle lens on it. I think possibly as wide as 90 millimeters. But it was 90, yes. But it becomes an issue trying to get it to make find a lens that will actually cover the six by seventeen format and be at that wide an angle. So five by seven format. Six, yes, six by seven, yes. It, it would have to cover five by seven, five by seven inch, yes. So I liked what Marwan said is, you know, I was thinking pure aspect ratios, but um, in terms of angle of view, if it's wider than what like your eyes can see is you're, you're, you're making an image that's different from what your brain perceives, you know, and I think whether people realize it or not, and, and I'm just trying to like reconcile this for myself, but I think whether people realize it or not, the appeal of panoramic images is to see an image wider than you could possibly see yourself. And when you look at it subconsciously, it's like, wow, that looks so cool because I cannot see the world this way. So, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I, I the problem with angle of view is that's harder to explain, though, too, <laughs> I think. But it's your it's it's probably more accurate because I never I mean, honest to God, I'm not just saying it. But before you said that, uh, I never really realized that. Yeah. When you get to a truly wide angle of view. Um, you're actually seeing things beyond what you experience through your own eyes. And, and I really like that. That's a great example, actually, because when when you look at um, the Hasselblad X-Pan, for instance, the, the most popular lens there is the 43 millimeter, which really expands it out. And the same with um, my favorite camera, which is, Mike? <laughs> Mia 7. Mia 7. We've already established ground rules that 6 by 7 it's not considered a panoramic format. It's not, but when you put oh, the man. panoramic, when you put the panoramic adapter, he's got the in, panoramic kit in there. I got, I got the panoramic kit. You're gonna in lose there. sleep on this one. <laughs> it's, I saw um, you. It, it, it gives you the the X pan format. So, and again, it's the it's the 43 millimeter lens that you put on, which really really 
sings when you do that panoramic. But if you just compare the Noblex, the Noblex has the same frame size um, like the Hasselblad X-Pan, but the Noblex has a panning lens. And the effect you get out of that is like, like day and night difference. That's why <laughs> I, I was saying that there's a conflation between wide frame and panorama that a lot of people today, because they have cameras that give you a aspect ratio that is a mimics the wide frame. So my everyday carry is anything that's got that panorama crop in the little point and shoot. I've got a ton of those little guys. I love the format. I shoot predominantly in an extended frame, whatever frame that is from 185 all the way to whatever you want to call 235. And I love that format. So I carry the cropped image, but that's on a panoramic, even though they've got a panoramic that's the that's that's what's been essentially co-opted. The idea that panorama is anything cropped or essentially extended or elongated, but that's not true because as we angle of view really is the true determining factor. Dean, back in the mid to late '80s, I was doing an academic degree in film theory yes. and fell in love with Panavision and mm. uh, immediately took my Nikon FM2 and put the widest lens I could and just built a, a printing rig where I could oh, crop wow. to uh, Panavision ratio. So it was, it was sure. sort of like I didn't have in-camera cropping, but I mm. never made a print that wasn't in that aspect ratio. So I'd print on 11 by 17 yeah. paper, had, wow. the ha had like a printing rig set up with the frame cut out, and I would find my photo within it. And for yes. years, that's how I made my panoramas was uh, was only through the, the, the end product. It certainly wasn't in camera because I yeah. couldn't afford an Oblex at the time being a poor grad student in film. Yeah. And uh, uh, but yeah, but for me, it was just like the, the falling in love with the cinematographers that were working with yeah. with wide angle, like the, the, just watch the first 10 minutes of Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, that's it. And it's absolutely a masterclass in how to compose for, for panorama. Um, and how to how to use that frame and close and distance and and left and right. All the non-rotating cameras are essentially just crops. Just depend. They True. really are. I mean, it's yeah. and it's not the same. I mean, um, you, you know, yeah. in order to in order to, I mean, you have to understand a little bit um, the human brain, how it is, how it processes images. And if we come to our standard angle, it's like when we look fixed to the front in order to see what for example a wide lux does or a noblex we have to turn left and right with our eyes and the moment you're doing that you're creating also a circle if you just fix a point and you do that you just have a circle created and um, that is exactly what these cameras are doing with the rotating lens and also the center of the lens is always the best, we have that slit that scans at the end of the day uh, over a time period, the image. And and that was, that's something that you cannot get with an X-Pan. If you take a 30 millimeter lens or Hasselblad X-Pan, then you get these Zeblin hats. Uh, everybody who's standing at the edge, you just get the distortion out of that wide angle lens that you're using. And um, yeah, and I think that is, I think one of the beauties of the swing lens type uh, a mechanism that 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 you get. So I actually wanted to ask that question, um, Marwan, but I'm glad you brought it up. Um, we have a lot of people already here that are uh, experienced with a lot of these panoramic or swing lens cam cameras, but 
putting yourself in the shoes of someone who's maybe never shot one of these before. Maybe they've only seen on Facebook or Instagram a panoramic image, but they've never shot that before. Can you maybe just at a very high level explain the difference between like how a swing lens camera works versus how like the X-Pan works? Well, what you have is, um, well, the X-Pan is in fact nothing else than a standard camera that has a typical shutter. The film is in a plane. Um, it's just kind of like the um, the film is just really flat. And uh, what you do is you just project um, the wide angle lens image on that film plane um, with all the disadvantages of a wide angle lens. Constructing wide angle lenses is not so easy uh, because you have also vignetting. They have the tendency of vignetting. They have the tendency of, of um, distortions at the edges and the quality of the lens also goes away, especially at the edges. The center is normally the best part of the lens. So when you're having a swing lens type, you have a barrel, you have a curved film plane, and that slit in the center of that barrel is in fact your shutter. You don't have a shutter in a swing lens camera. Um, it's just a single slit that just like goes like a scanning line over the film. And you have always the center of the lens and a distortion-free image to the edges. So the only problem of that is that you have to level your camera really precisely to the horizon. If you just level it a little bit up and down, then you just suddenly get also curved lines in your field that you photograph. But in fact, that is something that makes these cameras very special. So, you know, in order to combat the vignetting and the sharpness drop-off that a wide-angle lens has, you have to make the lens more complicated. So uh, we had mentioned earlier the X-Pan, the 30 millimeter lens. I just looked it up. That's a 10 element lens. And Paul, how much does a Hasselblad X-Pan 30 millimeter lens, what's the going rate for one of those right now? Uh, used one right now around a little over $3,000. Just for, just for the lens. Whereas yeah. on a swing lens, you can get away with a much, go ahead. You also, you also need the center spot filter, really. Center filter, yeah. So you have a complicated filter to help darken the center, to, which kind of balances out the already darkened edges. But with a, I know the Soviet, the Horizon, gets away with a three element, a triplet. The uh, Noblex has a four element, Noblar. What's, what, what do the wide luxes have? It also has, I think, a four element. Um, but yeah. the lens, the funny thing about that is that you don't need much uh, engineering for the lens. You can use very simple lens constructions right. and um, you get really great results. Hell, the, the original Kodak panorama, I think, was a meniscus. It was a medium format panoramics. So where I'm, where I'm kind of going with this is the cost to build a x-pan and buy one is, is prohibitively high whereas you can get away with with a less expensive simpler lens it's going to actually produce probably just as good if not better results without any gimmicks of like a center spot filter and a swing lens yeah it is it is a it is a meniscus yeah and over there he's holding up uh, patrick Graps is holding up a panorama is that a, a number one or number four number four okay so the the it is a meniscus yeah. lens yeah I've had it apart. Yeah. Uh, the big problem with these older ones is there's no, um, you know, the film speeds were different, so there's no aperture. So I've actually taken to putting a, a fender washer with a rubber washer to hold it in place to reduce the size of the uh, aperture. 
works pretty well. It's it's just there's no focus. It's a fixed focus. It's a they're interesting. It's like a tube. It's a tube with a lens on the end of it with yep. a with a center pivot and a spring. Yep. Right. I mean, am I oversimplifying it? Oh, that's <laughs> that is it. Actually, I've actually reviewed the number four. Or maybe it was the number one. I can't even remember. But I have pictures of what they look like on the inside, too. Uh, really fun cameras. They're just hard to find in working condition today because they're so old. Yeah, my problem was a new a new leather because the leather was leaking. And a guy in Australia made for me uh, a new chamois to replace it. And so what, what do you use? you have to cut sheet film for it? Oh, no. No, 120. I've modified it to take. It was 122 film, but it's 120. And that's the image printed. That's a 120? Yeah. <laughs> Now, how how big is one twenty two? It's the autographic size. It's it's the same as goes in a a a three A a, a yeah. Kodak three A or a Graflex three A. It was it about fifty percent bigger than one twenty or so? Yeah, it's probably good. Yeah, it's not that much. This here is a three A, which I just happen to have right, sitting right next to me. The reason why I've actually got the three A sitting next to me because um, it was one of the topics I wanted to tackle, which is using 120 in 122 cameras will give you um in 3a it's three and a quarter by five and a half inch which is six by 14 roughly if you if you put in 120 so that, that's one of the ways i was going to try and experiment and get panoramics but obviously with that um uh that panoram that uh you had there patrick that that's a different level altogether Theo, do you have to make a mask for that then so it keeps the film from bowing around? Possibly. I haven't tried it yet, but uh, possibly uh, you may have to, unless the tension is is good enough. But being an old Kodak, I suspect the tension might not be that great. So you may need I, to make a mask. I know Eric Mathy out in California was modifying those. Just to show you the difference in size, um, the camera I've got next to it is a Zeiss 616, Zeiss um, Super Conta 616, which I'm also going to try that on. And, and, and yeah, look at the difference in size, it's just those two. So Theo's holding up for anybody who's seen what an old early 20th century folding Kodak is. You know, if you think 120 is this kind of film you can get today, 116 is larger. And then the 122 is even bigger than that. So it's a, it's a huge honking um, folding camera. And, and to answer your question, um, in, whether you need a mask, you definitely should have a mask. That's the only way to hold the film plane flat otherwise it'll bow yeah patrick sh uh, showing the difference in spool size between 120 and 122 122 and yeah so it's, it's about, about 50, it's about 50 percent bigger maybe 50. yeah it's about i think it was a good guess yeah. yeah but i mean if you don't use a mask um you'll obviously the edges will be more blurred but you might actually like that though so it just depends on what the look you're going for i'll, I'll jump in and say i've been i've been shooting a, a zeiss cookerette uh with the 116 and I've been shooting it without a mask and getting really satisfactory results. I'm not getting any bowing at all. And it could just be that the Zeiss is really good at tensioning the film or uh, just the way that the, the, the film guides are set up. But uh, I've never noticed any distortion uh, with the Cookerette. Theo, what you're trying to do, I've done with my 3A Graflex. I've got a working 3A with the, the focal plane works on it. And I use a mask. I made a mask on both sides of the frame with right believe it or not gaffers tape i just did gaffers tape front and back and then okay real simple to do and you could take it off again yeah i mean reality is this this one i've got here the, the kodak 3a it's not going to be you know hasselblad or mamiya 7 type quality so um yeah a bit of uh, a bit of 
um, gaffer tape or something like that to, to mask it should be more than enough to give it the the right quality level. I, I know that this company Camera Hack in uh, where they Italy makes a lot of those adapters where you can put the 120 in those big. Yes. Yeah. They do the the Facmatic that thing allows yeah. you to put 35 millimeter into Instamatic cameras. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, since we've kind of already touched upon it a little bit, I mean, we have Marwan here from Silver Grain Classics, and um, I promise we were going to do a panoramic episode anyway. For those of you who've listened to the podcast since the very beginning, the first like five episodes, we just kept talking about panoramic cameras all the time. And I, I think I even, someone reminded me that I made a joke that it was the first open source panoramic podcast because it just, they, they kept coming up because um, I know Johnny Sisson was just a huge fan of panoramic cameras. I am Theo, you know, who is it, right? Um, but we have Marwan here from Silvergreen Classics and you can't be in this hobby and have not already seen the announcement that you guys are are looking to bring back the wide locks. Um, yes, I have, some, I have some prototype parts here. If you want to see them later, yeah. <laughs> <Just like, laughs> no, I mean I don't think I need to necessarily introduce the wide locks too much. I mean it's clearly mm -hmm. the most longest produced panoramic camera ever from what like 55 to 2000 or something like that yeah since the end of the 50s um but i think okay. the russians were earlier with it uh, so the horizon there was um one model um of the horizon uh that was earlier than the y logs they they got started but the horizon yes. but it wasn't produced continuously that whole time no. they ended Yes. They ended production of those, I think, in the mid '60s or so. But yeah, yeah. I, I believe the Wide Lux was in continuous production. Yes. Yeah, but they only made twenty thousand units. Yeah, it's really yeah, and that's it. Um, you just, just according to the serial numbers, um, Wide Lux, the company Panon, started as a manufacturer for medium format panoramic cameras, kind of like really big, and um, then in the mid mid fifties, they started to shift over to 35. And later in the nineties, they brought back the medium format models again, but they made not really a lot. And in 2000, then the company burned down. So um, that was at the, that was the end of the production, but over the time they only did 20,000 units. And, you know, so you guys are looking to sort of bring back the wide lux. I mean, it's probably a tall task convincing people to check out this camera. I mean, don't you think the job would be a little bit easier if you had like a celebrity or somebody who was kind of a fan of that camera? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah that would maybe help. Yes. Would it help? <laughs> it would help. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we all know who I'm talking about. Um, you know, yes. Jeff Bridges is a huge fan of the wide lux. And yes. what I think is important to distinct is this isn't just... Kim Kardashian woke up one day no. and is, is was seen shooting a contacts or something. No. He, no. Jeff's been a huge advocate of that camera for 30, 40 years, right? It's not only Jeff, it's also his wife, Susan. I have to say that, that Susan okay. uh, Susan Bridges and Jeff Bridges, they, they just told us the story that their wedding in the mid seventies, their photographer who was there, was having a, a wide lux camera and um he did also photos on other films uh formats but the only photos of their wedding party are the ones from the wide lux that survived so um and it has a very personal thing to them and um this camera i think the first wide lux he got from his wife so um it has a personal touch to to the family of the bridges and um it was for them really a personal thing to bring it back. So chicken or the egg? 
Was it yeah. you who contacted him about it? Or well, did he contact- no, it was totally different. It was totally different. We suddenly got a, I mean, honestly, since I'm in, 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 in that magazine business, I just really thought, oh, I wish one day to have an interview with Jeff Bridges. And then one morning, my colleague contacted me and he said, guess what? We got an email from an assistant from Jeff Bridges. They wanted to ask if we were interested in one of their portfolios. And I said, absolutely. So um, that's how it started. And then we got into an interview. And during that interview, Jeff suddenly said, well, where are you in Germany? We said, we're in Frankfurt, close to Wetzlar, where Leica is located. And uh, then they said, oh, why can't you contact them? Maybe they want to bring back a Wilux. So uh, we first thought it's kind of like one of these typical chit chats you do, you know, like, uh, wouldn't it be nice if the Rolling Stones would do again a world tour or something like that? You know, it would be nice. And then days later, they asked us again and again and again. And then we just said, okay. Uh, we're going to investigate if it's possible. And um, that's how it started. That's awesome. Yeah, I've seen some of his work and um, he's clearly talented, you know, because um, because yeah. I tell you what, one thing and this is a this is a question I do not have the answer to. I like I like shooting panoramic cameras. I've shot the X-Pan. I've shot the Kodak Panoram, um, the Horizon, that weird Soviet F-21 camera. Um, I've shot some of the crop sensor that uh, Minolta vista whatever it's called that's like only crop it can't do anything else and the one thing that i am not good at is framing panoramic to actually take advantage of it i mean because because i mean like anybody could point a panoramic camera at a statue and capture the statue in the middle and a whole bunch of other visual information to the side but the key is how do you take that whole angle of view, all the film real estate that you're about to capture and make an interesting story that that actually because you because you, if you do it right, you can tell a story in a single image. And that is the difference between someone who's just pressing, you know, pointing a camera at something and pressing a shutter release and someone who really is good at panoramic. So um, you know, not necessarily for Marwan, anybody else who thinks that they have um have figured it out. Um, help me, you know, help the listeners. I, I don't know, like, how do you start to see a panoramic image before you take it so that you, you, you end up with something visually interesting? It's difficult. I mean, I've, I've shot wide Lux. I've owned Noblex. I've owned Fujinon 617s, um, Linhoff 6x17, 6x, 6x12s. And except for, I, I bought them and I was doing most of my jobs as commercial work. So non-artistic as in Kind of like comparing photography to white seamless. Put it on the white seamless and shoot it. So it's it's definitely a learned skill. And for people that are good at this, like Jeff is amazing. His his photography and his wife's photography is absolutely amazing. Um, barring that, yes, there's no fingers in the in the shame frame either. But um, it's a learned skill. It's a lot. It's a lot easier to take the flat pictures in a lot of ways because I mean you can pick them up and look at them. You may not get the thing close to your eye, but you can see them. But the the swing lens, you have to, you know, the wide lux has got the little arrows on top of it. So you can kind of, you know, look back and forth and see it, but still hard. Well, in fact, the 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 viewfinder of the wide lux is terrible. It's kind of like it's it's uh, we just made that joke among Jeff and us. Uh, we call it guess finder. So it's uh, it's. That's more like that. For example, Noblex has a much better viewfinder. The Horizon has a much better viewfinder. But um, what they all lack is a little bit that classic style that the that the, this this metal thing, the mechanism in there. So um, yeah, but but 
one of the things what I started now to do is I'm just using the the panoramic cameras more as my always with me camera when I go to a city that I've never been before. Uh, it helps me to catch even maybe um, unconsciously more information than I really think about. And I just noticed it's it's wonderful because first of all, you don't have sh shaky images anymore uh, because that slit, even if it's one fifteenth of a second, you'll be surprised. You put uh, an, a, a, a Cinestill 800 film in it or a, a Portra 800 and you just go at night, I was recently in Brussels, was photographing at night with one fifteenth of a second. It works perfectly uh, there's on the magazine one of photos we did at night and it's really really an easy to use camera and for example jeff and susan are very good examples jeff is a person who photographs more like Henri cartier besson he just takes the camera out of the hip and makes an immediate photo susan for example she's more the person who sits there for like a large format photographer and creates the image perfectly all the lines should be perfect so it's kind of like the type you have to decide what kind of type of photographer you are the real test was always uh vertical panoramas because when i worked for fuji uh i had a guy named jack crawcheck out of cleveland and he traveled around and did cityscapes and his specialty because he followed the weather patterns but especially it became panoramas. The real problem then was how do you display them? Because you needed some place with a he was making huge prints. And so they got into stairwells and things like that, but you needed you needed so much space for a big print. Yeah. Hey, hey real quick before we go on, Bob, you just joined us a little bit late. Can you yeah. introduce yourself real quick? Oh yeah, Bob Grishak. Uh I was a Fuji Pro Products rep for 20 years. And before that, I ran camera stores. So been around panorama and shot a lot of them. I, Took it all over the place. So Bob, Bob was my Fuji rep. Who said that? That's Paul. Oh yeah, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah Bob, right. Bob. Bob was very good to us. He got us a lot of uh, product at times when it was uh, when they were hard to get. We 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 had a picture stat that ran all the time. Oh, and, uh, what a uh, great machine that was. Yeah. yeah, a whole different uh, a whole different era for sure. Yeah, you you touched you touched upon vertical panoramas, and I've actually tried one before, and. Uh, I, I can't handle a landscape panorama, so vertical is a whole completely different ball game. Landscape isn't that hard, though. I mean, it's just it, the, the Fuji was easier because you had there you go. The Fuji was easier, especially when we went to the GX because you could just hold the different viewfinders for the different lenses, and that made the visualization, I think, a little easier because handling the camera wasn't easy. If you really want to drive the Instagram crowd crazy, put a vertical panorama into uh, into an Instagram feed. <laughs> Mike, if I could get back to one of your questions, though, you'd asked about like learning composition and learning how to shoot with panorama. And, you know, this is the old film history teacher and me coming back saying, go back and look at the classic widescreen cinemascope films from the 1950s through the 1970s and look at how some of these master cinematographers worked with composition and i think that you know as film photographers we're used to looking at the magnum photographers looking at cartier bresson looking at but i think that 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 panorama is something different and that it in a way the way that uh, in pop culture we think about panorama does come out of widescreen cinema and that there's a lot to be learned and of course i think that jeff's I mean, Jeff's shooting these on the sets of movies, in sets that are lit to be movies, working with cinematographers. And, you know, I think that that's why 
his photographs are as compelling as they are because it's drawing from that history of film of cinema. And, uh, you know, I just, I just can't recommend enough going back and, and especially just like, Oh, like even later films like, like Paris, Texas. And, and, uh, you know, just look at people that are working with widescreen, even if they're not cinema scope, but working with like wide Panavision, um, there's, there's a lot to be learned about how, uh, how to put that frame together in a way that's that's more compelling than just like there's a statue with a whole bunch of, of stuff on the left and the right. I would agree with Anthony too about looking at film, films, motion pictures. And I think I tend to look at panorama like the thinking flat, not in depth of field. Like what what how can you work with depth of field more in your panoramic images? Again, making them more interesting. Well, can you really do a lot of narrow depth of field in a panoramic camera? I mean, how would you do that? You can put the, um, I know that my Noblex, I have a, a diopter for it, and you can put a plus one or plus two or plus three diopter. Okay. You lose the infinity focus, but you gain, a, you know, you gain a, a, yeah. a depth of field. They, they, have, a, they have a magnetic, um, uh, yet you turn this around and there's a magnetic filter that sticks in there. Okay. They're, they're incredibly difficult to find now, though. Well, some some we are also working on filters for the wide looks, so that will be that will be one of the points when we just um, so that we have also filters that would work and could go for close images. Um, but what some people did was they were taking contact lenses and putting contact lenses in front of the lens, um, just like to, like for your eye, like. The typical okay. eye contact lenses. I mean, they okay. after twenty four hours you can't use them anymore. So, so you just use one and you just put it on the. It's a little bit of trial and error, but it works. Yeah. So, um, wow. yeah, you have but, to keep it wet for sure. Yeah, you have to. Well, yes. <laughs> my one. What is it? What does it? What does it do to the image? I I would love to try that. What is? What does it do? Putting the contact lens on. It's a meniscus lens. Yes. So it creates a meniscus over like, the lens. Like a, like a it's like a close up lens. Yeah, okay. you have to. Yeah, you just come cl ah. come closer to it. You have to experiment a little bit. It's not a real uh, science that you do, but uh, it helps to get closer to your image. Um, beside closing the f-stop, but uh, we are definitely working on filters, and uh, mm. we will also try to see what we can do with uh, with lenses that makes you make it possible to go closer um, to your to your object. There's a um, there's a guy in Australia that's making. Yes, we talked with him. Yeah, yes, yes, he's, he's made, he makes the filters. He, he makes, makes the classic color filters, doesn't he? Well, yeah, he, he 3D prints the little arms and then he fits yes. filters. Um, when I had my Noblex overhauled, and there's not many people doing these. You know, the guy in Canada is pretty much the only guy. Siggy Road is like the only guy, and he replaces the um, the yeah. black rubber thing that gets sticky under here. The the, mm. the roller. And I had him, um, I sent him an orange, an infrared, uh, and he made me filters, filter holders with an infrared and an orange, and I bought a diopter, and he said, these are the last holders I have. Hmm. You can't find them. You, you can find the 120 holders on eBay every so often, but the 35 holders, they just, nobody sells them. Nobody, nobody they, What's really unfortunate, well, cool and unfortunate, it's unfortunate that the Noblex has such a critical point of failure there is like a, a drum with what Skip was talking about out of a wax material that was meant to kind of make it grippy, but it it does it lasts maybe 10 years tops and it starts to degrade and it falls off. And once that happens, the drum can't spin at the correct speed anymore. But the cool thing about the Noblex that makes it different from like the wide locks, 
the horizon, pretty much any other swing lens camera is in other swing lens camera, the wet lens swings back and forth. Like uh, in the, in the Noblex, it just spins in a continuous circle. There's an electronic motor and the Noblex, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only swing lens camera that can do double exposures. Oh, no, or, they're, not, they're not doubles. You can hold it down as many as long as, as, many as you yes, want. Yes, yes. Right. Yeah. It'll just spin and spin and spin. And if you have the right light meter, the panel looks on it, yeah. then even you can you can control the rotation. Uh, but right. we talked, um, the thing is when we were, it was not necessarily that we wanted to bring back uh, the wide locks because Jeff wanted to have that um, swing lens camera back. And so we were investigating uh, if there's a possibility to bring whatever swing lens. Oh, yeah, cool. You have a panel yeah. locks. Wow. wow. I have no idea how to use it. It, I read. I have the manual for it. It's confusing as hell, and I just took it off. Well, it's German. Yeah. So what this what? Is, real quick? What this is? It's a. It mounts to the top of the camera. Yes. And it's essentially auto exposure for a swing lens camera. But even more than that, it can actually vary the speed of the swing. Yes. So if one part of your image is more exposed than the other, it can actually change the speed throughout the motion, which yeah. just blows my mind. Yeah. that it's possible but what's what's really cool about the noblex is is with that multiple exposure where you can just keep having the, the thing spin around yes um yes. marco marco kruger or kroger I, I can't pronounce it right has a really great german language website where he reviews a lot of east german cameras but he's got an excellent review of the noblex i could include in the notes but he went into like a uh, subway station with real shitty light and he mounted the Noblex to like a tripod or some fixed surface. And there were people in there. So he would have it spin around and then someone would walk by, he would just wait. And then they'd walk away and then he'd spin the lens around a little bit more. And then more people were walking. So he was shooting an image and it wasn't crowded, but the, you know, it was an active subway and he only swung the lens around when there was nobody there. And after doing like 16 or so exposures on top of himself, when he ended up developing the image, he got an entire subway completely empty. Mm -hmm. You know, he was able to just not make it take pictures while there was someone in his way. And he, it took him forever. I, I can't imagine calculating exposure on something like that. But mm -hmm. the images he got from it, like there's just no way to do that on any other camera. Well, remember the first daguerreotype was of Paris from the window and the only people in it were the guy Shoe shoe shined and the yep. shoe shine kid was a blur. So it's yeah. the same, same kind of yeah. deal. That's, that's pretty idea. nice circle, pretty right? Yeah. But the Noblex is, you really can't do that, at least not easily on any other swing lens camera. But the Noblex is, even though they're not that old, we're talking about a camera from the 90s. Um, very few of them work and there's almost nobody who could fix them anymore. The thing is, so. they, the thing is we talked with the design team because we were thinking about bringing the Noblex back also because the design team's still there. The company Noblex still exists. Uh, it had the biggest chance to get technical drawings so that we could do a reverse engineering. So we talked with the design team of the company Noblex and those who invented the Noblex camera and they told us that these cameras were always, they never left the prototype status. So most of them were already not really reliable when they were new. Oh, so, really? Yeah, that's the thing, because you have to see they were made in Dresden after the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
and the camera industry in East Germany was really in trouble. So the government was supporting them and uh, they tried really to get their business running. So they just said, what can we do? And they just got the Noblex, made the Noblex. And the Noblex is, is a clever design, but even with the technology from then, uh, you could have made it better. And uh, especially that rubber wheel is kind of like, why are you doing that? You could have taken a micro motor or something like that. So they were thinking too much in East German uh, Soviet communist uh, uh, models, what they were just putting what they had and they made that camera. Uh, it was very successful, but it was not very durable. And it was always kind of a camera with problems. But did anybody expect these cameras, any cameras, to last this long no you know nobody i mean the pentex six by seven our joke in the business is always you had to have at least three so you had one that wasn't in the shop yeah. and that was when they were new so yeah. but the failure rate was very high with the noblexes even with new ones what is the difference between the angle of view between wide lux and noblex wide lux is 170 odd or was it i think they're both i think they're all about 140 yeah, approximately. They have a very similar. Approximately 140 are very similar. I can tell you that after multiple rows of film, I still could not stop getting my fingers in the image on the <laughs> Noblex. So there's there's yeah. a rubber kind of indentation that you have to keep. The problem is, though, and I'm holding this, but the, the camera is actually pretty big. I mean, it's not mm -hmm. a lightweight camera and you're holding a valuable camera that you want to hold steady. And the only way to do it is with your fingertips. So you're like out in the wild shooting an expensive, rare, barely working camera. And your instinct is to just grip it, you know, because you don't want to drop it. But you can't you have you have to hold it with the very tips of your fingers or just kind of have a you know what they really need is like what the Zeiss Holagon has. You need like a trigger you know, a handle for below it or something would actually be the best way to do it. Two things. One, the strap on this is horrible. The, the yeah, no mine doesn't have the strap. Well, I just made a double. I just throw oh. strap through there, but it doesn't have a strap on the left side. It's only got one strap, which is whoever thought that up was an idiot. Yeah, it's uh, got a wrist strap like it's a tiny little point and shoot, but I mean, exactly. it's uh, Exactly. It's not the weight of it's the weight of a, of a full size SLR, even though it oh, looks it plastic. I mean, it's all plastic from the outside, but this camera has some heft to it. And and this is the 35 millimeter version. They made a medium format too, which I've never even seen one of those. Medium format I've shot extensively. Um, it's not which that one? much heavier, believe it or not. It's not that much larger. I was oh, really bring one for a while. Which one, Ray? The 120, the, the, the 12, the one the 12, or the the other one? The 150. The one that there's a 175 too. The I, had the, I had the one, I had the 150. And what was unusual about mine is when you took a photo, the drum would spin once to get up to speed. Basically, the drum was firing in two two rotations, mm -hmm. unlike the wide luck, which is one rotation or the horizont. Mm -hmm. But the Nublex 150 was a dual rotation of the the. Uh, drum itself yeah they had to do that yes that's right uh, but you have a big shutter delay that's the next thing with the with the noblex it's it's kind of like not like the wide looks or the horizon so spontaneously for users they don't realize that's a that's a giant difference in the way these cameras operate the noblex uh, as as marwan indicated takes it takes a whole half of a rotation mm. for the exposure to start as the drum gets up to speed and then it breaks after it passes the wide looks and the uh, horizon <laughs> They've tension it. And as soon as you press that shutter release, you know, here's the wide locks and, you know, you turn them. And as soon as you hit that button, it's going right then. So you can do candids with them. Whereas with the Noblex, it's not easy. You really got to, you got to time it just right. 
But it, especially, uh, and that's one of the things what I do love about that um, swing lens type camera, you have a hybrid between a motion picture camera and a still photography yeah. camera. And um, and there you are creating, and I think that's also one of the things Jeff does. He's creating stories and you have a still image, but you can see the motion in it. And um, that's what I personally love about it. And that one I also noticed when you walk through a street and you see all that action, that makes the that, that makes these cameras so sexy for me. Well, and it, it, it doesn't hurt that he's a very accomplished Hollywood actor who knows what it takes to make uh, uh, you know, cinematography, and he can apply that to yeah. composing, you know, a still image. And, you know, I'll also tell you the um, the rise and fall is surprisingly useful. Yeah, there's a what he's talking about. There's a wheel that you can move it and it'll actually lift, like give you a slight rise and fall of, I think, like 10 degrees. Maybe. For architecture. Yeah. 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 It gives you about four millimeters and you can see it in the finder. There's a little cutout on the top of the finder, a little notch. And that's the amount that you can that you move it down or up or you, so if you're shooting, you can do like this or you can turn the camera upside down and you can turn the camera down and you get the same thing because the shift only works one way. So Marwan, as, as you move forward with this project, are you looking at it being a 3D printed product or are you going to be casting? Well, um, I just have here some parts if you want to see them. I want to hear more about this uh, this project. Uh, well, we have it here in Maple. So these are, this is, for example, the front part. We have here just kind of like the major part. These are the most complicated things to make. Um, uh, we were we were just thinking at the beginning to do the prototype in uh, 3D printing plastic. But uh, first of all, Jeff hates plastic totally. And uh, we decided even to go into a metal uh, part uh, prototyping. And the good thing is nowadays that, uh, well, if you just take two two different wide luxes, we just, we just bought some cameras and disassembled them and decided to do a reverse engineering. And we just found out that these cameras were definitely handmade. You don't find two F8s that are exactly the same. They have always short differences or small differences that make them you cannot really interchange parts whenever you do that you have to work on them to make them to make them running so with modern technology like like 3d scanning and 3d printing metal 3d printing we can definitely get now a much better quality uh and we're going to do that fully in germany so the moment uh, we got the prototype parts from an aerospace company here in germany that works for airbus industries and they have exactly uh possibilities to make high precision parts in small numbers because i mean it's definitely not a mass-produced product so even costs are important but um yeah with modern technology it's unbelievable what you can do nowadays you know is it magnesium alloy or aluminum i think that's an um that's an aluminum uh material i can't really tell you what is the prototype uh metal out of it because we just had to first getting our first cameras running so that we can really test how it works and um but we are in the middle of the prototyping phase at the moment i mean the thing that i would ask but besides the price of course you probably can't say that but no. you know, aperture, um, anything about aperture or, or more shutter speeds? We were thinking about all of these things. Well, we will not have a focus and we will also be very close to the original F8. Um, okay. 
it's it's kind of like you know there are also for example the the advanced lever for example uh, jeff was first thinking about can we make one that is more modern and not just this turning knob uh, and then we we talked with some specialists from Leica and they said you know to make one you have to be very careful because otherwise it kills the film you have to the design is not so simple and um there is a reason why the the wide lux people did that over 40 years in the same way and we didn't want to go in anything that bears risks so that we can disappoint the customer. So what we're going to do is what he did was we were looking at all the problematic parts of the original wide locks. Uh, we're trying to um, uh, get these problems out with modern materials, with higher precision, uh, but we don't want to change too much of it. And it's also Jeff's philosophy. He wants that camera uh, because that's the camera he loves. It's a very personal thing for him. <laughs> So I think you answered the question I was about to ask. Um, is the F8 the version of the Wide Lux you're basing the new prototype off of? Yes, it's because we were searching for the latest camera okay. with the, the the least wear. Because we try, we really find a new old stock, several new old stock models, so that we can uh, um, measure all the parts and just do the reverse engineering based on them. That's interesting. You should say that because uh, Rudy. Just jumped in here. Uh, our friend Rudy Burton is uh, just joined the podcast, mm -hmm. and I think he's got a roll of film in an F8 right now, don't you, Rudy? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I just got it developed or getting it developed right now. Uh, okay. So, well, you just I finished hope, a roll in the F8. Yeah, I hope it worked. It's the first time using the F7. I had an F6 before, which had some banding in it, which I gave to Mike, <laughs> so he can experiment with it and see if he can get it fixed. So, so the one you shot was actually an F7 rather than F8? Yeah, I thought it was an F8, but just I, looking I, at it now, it's an F7. I so. never saw the top of it. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's not very clear. The, the F7 is very faded. So what if, if someone was looking to buy a wide lux? Like, what are the major differences between... I'm not expecting to say every one. Are, are there certain models besides just newer is better? Or At the end of the day, you can say definitely the newer is better. Because... Um, you have a it's spring driven so you just have to see the spring itself which is the set which is kind of the power source of the camera um the older the spring gets less uh, precise it's it's running you have all the bearing parts are definitely getting dirty you definitely need a cla so if you want to shoot a slide film, for example, and where you need a very even movement of the barrel, um, I would recommend everyone to clean the camera or to do a CLA and just uh, to have a, a specialist to look at it. Whose uh, glass are you going to use for lenses? You know, the good thing is that where we live, we have uh, all yeah, these... Two, um, two good ones. <laughs> well, the, 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 the company itself, the research and development is done in Bad Kreuznach, Germany. So maybe uh, the camera enthusiasts about among you know but but Kreuznach is kind of like famous for optic industry so there is the research and development is going to happen the new address also of the company is there and um production uh will be in Wetzlar where Leica is located and uh, we also have the service and maintenance that would be in Hamburg but um all of these things are already in planning 
And what name will it, Marwa, what name would it come under? Does it come under a wide lux? You have to wait a little bit. I'm not authorized okay. to talk about <laughs> that at the moment. <laughs> so so is, is the original company still in business that made no, them? No. No, okay. No. So at least you don't have that. That's no, at least no, one obstacle no. out of the way. Well, I mean, anytime any new camera is being brought back is exciting for the industry as a whole. You know, we know Pentax yep. is trying to make something. There's a lot of a lot of mm -hmm. them, though, are like kind of half, you know, attempts made in China. And, you know, I don't know of too many, you know, real efforts to reignite a classic camera in Germany, you know, made of metal with the original design in mind. Yes. I mean. What you guys are doing is is pretty uncommon. Yeah, well, but again, I mean, if you just do a small production run, then Germany is really a place for that. If you if you, because yeah. especially Chinese manufacturers, they are thinking in hundred thousands of million units, you know. Yeah. And uh, if you just come with something with a smaller batch number, then then they're not so happy about that. So while we're waiting, while we're waiting on the new wide lights, um, Skip, you mentioned something about a guy in Toronto or in Canada who does service. Is there someone also for wide lux? So I went hunting um, for the Noblex and Bob Watkins is kind of the guy in the US, but he's moved around a few times. Um, I did buy a new button from him, a new multi-exposure. Bob him. is uh, Precision Camera Works in Lakeway, Texas, right? Well, he was in California, then he was in Texas and he's back in California, I think, but- Oh, he is, okay. Uh, but I contacted a guy named Siggy Rogue. Well, he's at Noblex Canada in Vancouver. He told me he's done over 250 of these. And he had, he had the um, the drums machined out of Delrin plastic, which is a very, very high quality industrial black plastic. And he took the whole thing apart and, you know, cleans everything, does everything. It's not cheap. You know, I think it was like three or four hundred dollars. But, he, but he's essentially improving the design, sort of taking away that waxy wheel that it should have had all along, right? Yeah, and he's the guy. He's very good. You ship him to Washington, yeah. and he comes across the border and picks them oh, up. Oh, to pick them up. So you don't That's have to nice. pay. So you don't have to pay international shipping. They come from Washington for the U.S. Uh, well, with a plastic drum, that's going to be lighter than the original drum was metal, right? No, the original metal, the drum was black. Was a black sticky. Was a plastic. Was that a, was plastic? Oh, okay. All right. Some kind, but of, it was sticky. So that well, it's like, it was like a lot of industrial plastics that sure. they eventually outgas. And they, you know, like they, they get sticky. And so there's nothing to do about it. There's no solving it. You've got to replace it. And they re-engineered it. And, um, but I, I had nothing good, good things to say about the guy. He did a, it was really nice deal. This is during COVID. So he said he, the border was closed for like four months. He couldn't even take a camera. But uh, well worth it. Wide Luxes? Who, uh, Bob Watkins is doing wide luxes. That there's probably three or four, two or three other people in the U.S. I don't know. I what I did uh, earlier this year. I did a worldwide camera repair database, and when it came to wide luxes and no blexes, um, Bob Watkins was the name that kept popping up. Well, Bob did that I think in the past, but he's not taking them anymore. I sent it to Oleg in Russia. No, he's in Slovakia. He relocated. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We made a podcast with Oleg. Uh, he's a really nice guy, and he's uh, just... It was inexpensive. He sent back a little roll of a strip of like four frames with a car in the snow uh, they, you know, to test the camera. It was really, really very nice guy. Yeah. For uh, listeners, um, Skip's actually holding up a Horizon. Horizon 202. So how does how does that compare like to the wide locks or the no blacks? Is that... Uh... You know, they aren't, the, the Noblex has the best lens of the bunch. It's much more refined. Um, but I'm telling you, this is a really, really nice tool. It's yeah. rugged. It's got 
you know, it's got six shutter speeds and it's got a bunch of aperture because it's got two slit widths. Uh, it's got like two ranges. It's noisy. There was even a, a later model, uh, the S3, sorry, U500. It's your model uh, with a 500 of a second. Um, the Perfect has only um, two uh, shutter speeds. Oh, really? But this one is, in fact, um, it's it's more round-shaped. Yeah. Um, and I think that was the reaction from Horizon to the Noblex design in the 90s. Because your camera, the it 202. Looks inspired by it for sure. Yes, exactly. So they just tried here. You see just here. Um, that's the 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 slow speeds. So um I just got that for 100 euro from Moscow. Yeah, these are I'm telling you, these are great cameras. Uh yeah. it's much more reliable than uh, than the wide look, much less. Well, and, and even back then, and it still applies today, if you're looking for swing lens and value, the Soviet cameras are, are the way to go. You know, uh, a lot of them don't work, but factor <laughs> in factor in a CLA with the incredibly low, you said 150 bucks, right? If you have to pay 150 bucks for the camera yeah. and another 250 on a CLA to Oleg, you know, you're in $400, but you'll actually have a really nice tool and you're not going to find a Noblex or, you know, I, suffice it to say a, a CLA wide Lux for that price. So if you're willing to spend, you know, between three to $500, in my opinion, your best bet is to get a CLA Soviet camera. Yeah. I picked up a uh, 1970 Horizon, the metal bodied one Yeah, uh, on nice one. eBay from, from, from Kupag, our buddy and, and, uh, He's Slovakia. Yeah, he's in Slovakia also. And I think I, I think I shipped. I think it was one hundred and twenty dollars. And I have shot the crap out of that camera. I lo I love shooting it. It's fun. Uh, does it does get some banding on the high speeds? But in all honesty, you know, like Marvin was saying, I'm, I'm I mostly shoot it at the slower speeds and get fantastic results at most films that I, sh I run through it. And what were they new? What were each of these cameras when they were new? Denny, do you remember the prices? Yeah, I mean, when they were new, what did these things well, cost? I'm they, trying, I um, can't remember. They were not cheap, by the way. No. Even the Soviet ones. Um, I can tell you that um, in the 1970s, uh, in Germany, the, um, her, the, the, the first Horizon, that metal one that popped up, was in the range of, at the time, around 1,000 German marks. Uh, which was quite a lot of money. It was cheaper than the, the, the wide locks, but it was expensive. Um, the um, 202 um, was at the beginning of the 90s in Germany, around 1,200 German marks. And How many marks to the dollar? At the, I think at the time it was two German marks were $1. So $600. Something six hundred to seven hundred dollars, yes, and uh, and the white lux was I think around two thousand marks. It was just a thousand dollar approximately, and um, and the noblex was something like in the nineties two thousand two thousand German marks, and the um, the two o two was twelve hundred to thirteen hundred German marks. So it was not cheap. But yeah, so the camera with a CLA now is so much cheaper. I mean, now they're a real bargain. I remember seeing these new for $16.95. Yeah, that, that sounds, makes yeah, sense. That yeah. Sounds right. And the yes. Noblexes were about the same price. Yes, the Noblexes were in the and same up. price, right? Yeah. And up. Yeah. And you're right. It may be a little, well, not include the big ones. The big ones were more. Yeah. Well, and I sold the, the Fuji Panorama with all three lenses. You know, you were looking at eight to twelve thousand dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Or Lenhoff, you know, as a the, oh, the Technica was just yeah. But those those prices have shot up again recently. Yeah. 
they've shot up aggressively. That X, the, the, I've got a 617, not the X, and the X has gone exorbitant. Well, I, when I sold all mine after I left Fuji, I, I got them just before the, like the film market collapsed. And I thought, oh my God, I made a fortune on these things. And then they just disappeared. And then I started showing up and I look at the prices and think, wow. Yeah, they're like, they're more than new now. But the problem with the Hasselblad X-Pan is a little bit like they all have the same Achilles heel problem with uh, their shutter and it cannot be repaired. So what? Yeah, it's unfortunately one of the points. Rudy? Blame Fuji. Fuji build them all. (laughs) You know, I I had one of those and I had it for about two years. It was a great camera. I felt it was a little more of a one-trick pony. Uh, I kind of got tired of it after a while, even though the images were spectacular. I saw a lot of chromes. They were wonderful. Uh, And I said, I started getting squirrely, you know, because when you load the camera, the first thing it does is it sucks all of the film out of the cartridge and puts it on the tap spool so it can know how much is left based on whether you've taken X number of regular 35s or X number of long pictures. The real push behind that, though, is so that the exposed Fuji wanted the exposed film in the canister. They didn't give a crap about what format you took. It was about having the exposed film back in the canister so it was safe. Well, it allows it allows them to do the calculation too, because it knows how much yeah. went out. The exposure no counter, the exposure counter on the X pan will automatically adjust for however many standard uh, ratio and, and wide wide ratio images you've done, which is nice. When you flip the um, the format, it changes the shutter number depending on right. every time you flip it because it knows how much film is left. But we're talking about the unreliable shutter on the um, X pan and. Uh, I, I I couldn't have picked the timing better, but literally today, Rudy's got an X-Pan and we couldn't get it to work. We're like, try a different lens. Paul's like, try moving the aperture lever. How, try different batteries. And and how, Rudy, explain what, what your experience was with that. Well, I loaded the film. Uh, everything went fine. And uh, went out for a shoot and nothing happened when I tried to shoot. But the the only clue I got was that in the back of the screen, the numbers 8888 would show up. And that indicates somehow a shutter cocking mechanism that doesn't work anymore. Try to help it out like you advise with changing the lens or something like that, but uh, nothing helped. Has anybody looked in Japan? I mean, Fuji built those. Is there anybody in Japan fixing them because it was the TX, whatever it was? We never we never got to touch them because we weren't in Japan. TX1 and TX2. Yeah. Has anybody looked in Japan? There's one repair station in France that supposedly that did repair one in September of 2020. And whether they're still willing to do that, I don't know. The problem is the circuit boards are just just not available. That's so, the problem. I, I I sold mine and I missed it. But, you know, I said, you know, say la vie. And I'm glad I never bought another one. They just scared the crap out of me that I would buy a Three or four, five thousand dollar brick. I know how you feel. I it's my favorite camera, and it sits on my shelf as this glowing. One day is just going to die. It sits there, and every time I take it out, I will this be the day that this camera and but it's still my all time favorite camera. Based on I love rangefinders. I love the formats. You know, we can get into the like you say. There's the discussion of widescreen versus panorama, and those lenses are stunning. So it's it's absolutely. But I I know that it is a ticking time bomb on my shelf. My solution is this, <laughs> which is a, what is that? Is a Mamiya Pro S 220 back a Mercury camera 3D printed film gate adapter in it. And so it's a 220 backs, which means you get, you know, long exposures. 
It's got the, you know, he's made some changes inside and you replace this thing here. And it's got a little, uh, you know, you, you there's a little I have film counter that I have a piece of tape and you move the film counter down every time you use it. It's a little kludgy. And then when you get through, you have to crack it open in the dark, in a dark room or bag and rewind it by hand. You know, it's not that much different, especially if I got a 50 millimeter. I've only got a 65. So I have the Bronica ETRS with a 35 mil wide back. I know there is a wide back state at the moment. There's another one floating around, but that's my that's my back, like exactly, that's the back up there. And that allows you to rewind back into the canister. So it's a traditional mechanism. Got a camera dactyl, Ethan Moses. Dactyl, uh, homunculus 69. And I masked down the um, finder to um, right now. It's the, this is a exactly the right shape. So I find these great because you can just pick it up and click. You know, it's a, it's a nice point and shoot. It's a great camera. I use, I use it all the time. You know, you know, a topic that comes up frequently, and I'm glad Mark Faulkner's here in this episode, but, you know, the world of 3D printing has opened up so many options for many industries. Photography, you know, definitely is there too, from from adapters. You know, Anthony was talking earlier about using adapters for 120 on a 122 camera. We talked about uh, that Italian company that's making, you know, the Facmatic, you know, and, and all those things. There's uh, panoramic masks that are being printed, you know. So, Mark, have you gotten into any of that yet? Like, tried to print any any of your own homemade panoramic adapters? Yeah, I messed around a little bit with, again, with a, um, it was a Mamiya 645, just messed around a little bit with that to see if it would fit in there and stay in place. And most cameras, it seems like just with a little bit of, of foam, you can get something to kind of sit in there and won't shift around on you while you're trying to wind the film and take the shot. Something else that I've been looking at now is that apparently you can buy filament that is actually metal filament and you print it at home, then you send it off to BASF and they will center it together and make a fully functional steel part out of it. And so that's something I'm going to try to mess with here and see if there's any, maybe to reproduce gears or something like that for some of the cameras that I, like I, I tend to print in either PLA or nylon and nylon even wears out over time if you have a very mechanical system like a set of gears or whatnot. So I'm kind of interested, kind of intrigued to try this uh, steel printing and see how, how it works out. I was wondering about a Hasselblad with a 645 or even a, 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 an A12 back, cut the dark slide. Could you do something like that? Put a mask in your viewfinder and you're there. Yeah, Rob, Bob, that's what this has in the back of this, this camera. It, it does it? Oh, okay. Yeah, it, when you glue it in, there's enough room on the outsides. And the um, the maker, I forget what his name is, they got Mercury, cut a dark slide. It's got a little long, um, it's got film in it, so I don't want to take it out, but a little long, thin, dark slide that slides in. But I think with a blood, I mean, we always put the dark slides in and out anyway. Just cut a dark slide and you can be a panorama or not a panorama. Yeah, well, I, I just, I mean, 220s are so cheap. I bought another one and I have another one that I use for sprockets and that I, that I just left unmodified and uh, and I just, um, you know, run it through and, you know, I have one for mask and one for sprockets. The one that I turn to is the 617s, the the art panoramas. It goes on a, it goes on a graph lock 4 by 5 there you go. That's easy. And it's got its own little, it's got its own little ground glass. Now, are there groups like, are, are there Facebook groups or, or places where people discuss like all these homebrew options? Cause I mean, you guys are throwing some stuff and I can see them and I don't even understand what you're showing, but I have to imagine that there's subgroups of film collectors that do this a lot. Like do you guys, can you recommend any resources? There's a homemade film camera, homemade camera podcast that, uh, right. That's out there. It's a homemade uh, Facebook page as well. 
on my camera Facebook page if you look up. Well, Lomo, Lomo has a couple options. There's an all plastic Lomo that does, I think, what, six by 17 or something like that, isn't there? And then they have the sprocket rocket, which is a 35 millimeter panoramic, but it exposes the sprockets. Right, has anybody followed the guy GX Ace on YouTube? He's a, he's a, 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 does amazing stuff. He's got really cool videos and he's a kid that literally lives around the corner from me. And, uh, he he's he makes uh takes the old light uh, flash handles from Graflexes and makes them into lightsabers that have all the electronics in them so they look real. But he is engineering stuff for and he's a film fanatic. And I'm going to bring all this up with him and see if he's he's he owns most of these cameras anyway. And uh, um, I'll see if he's interested and in, in get him to contact you guys. He's a, he's a cool guy, and he, I, I, if anybody could come up with something, he, I think he could do it. He's got a full machine shop in his house now. You know, we, we were talking about, uh, you know, the failures on the X-Pan, and while we were talking about it, I saw that Rudy pulled out a uh, G617, and, you know, even though it may not have the angle of view of a, of a wide lux, I have been really loving shooting that 617 because, for one thing, it has the complexity of a Voigtlander Vito B. You know, it is it is like as manual of a camera as you could have. It has a really nice adjustable wind system uh, that you can shoot 220 or, or, or 120 in it. And it sort of adjusts uh, just by moving a pressure plate. All four shots. <laughs> That's right. But, it, but what's nice about it is it is so dead simple. I mean, it is cock the shutter. Set the focus, set the aperture, press the button, wind it. There's no electronics. Remember to cock the shutter, though. Yes, yes. <laughs> But this camera is not going to fail. I mean, no. this is this this camera is not going to let you down in the field. I feel I've taken it like way I've taken it out like on uh, a skiff out in the middle of the Okefenokee Swamp, where I'm like leaning over the the bow of a of a boat cruising down these canals in the Okefenokee, totally confident that I'm going to get the shot that I'm that I'm I'm after. Well, it's funny you mention it because years ago there's a big company I worked with and they wanted to borrow my six seventeen and they were going to the North Pole. So I gave it to them. And when they came home, they said all the specially prepared Leicas, everything else died. Guys were dropping them. They said the only thing that worked was this G617. It was before the GX. And the biggest problem they had when they had to advance so slowly because the film was so cold, it shattered like glass. Yeah. Wow. And I was picking film out of that camera. I ended up having to send it in and they had to rebuild it because there was just so much shards of film in there. But I still had the contact sheets of them that they shot and it was the only camera that wow. worked and I didn't do anything to it. I just handed, I didn't even think about it. So, so if you want to get into the medium format wide you know, exposure, that 617 is one hell of a camera. I, I'm really You're right, happy. So they'll never break. That, that's, there's nothing moves. Right. <laughs> but we do need to ask Paul, do you still miss that camera? I miss that camera so much. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got my eye on Rudy's. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably why Bob liked Paul as his Fuji rep because Paul would keep getting them and he kept selling them. Every time Paul, every time Paul gets one, he reminisces about how much he loves it, and then like five seconds later, he sells it to somebody. My favorite kind of customer. <laughs> so, so, Paul, what do you have that you're using in place of it? Uh, I use a, a Sony A7 R2 with an Icon 28 millimeter PC lens. Hard to argue with. 
And the PC lens covers, you know, a, a larger area. Theo's got Theo's got a, is that a 28 or a 35 PC. No, I, I've got the 35 here in my hand. I, I have moment, both. They, but, they but, work. They work interchangeably. What's the um? What's the image circle on the 35? It's wide in the 28. It's big. Yeah. It's big. there are adapters you can put them on. You can put them on X pens. Well, that, that's where I was going. I saw this guy. Yeah, and, and they even work on the sites uh, round shots. Correct. Paul, can you explain how a pers uh, perspective correction lens, like you have to shift it from left, center, right, right? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, you, you make three separate exposures. And the way I do it is I, I shoot the first one centered. I shoot the second one shifted all the way to the left. And then I just rotate the whole lens so the shift is then on the right and make the third exposure. And then you just simply merge them in Photoshop or Lightroom. You can stick them on an X-Pan with an adapter and they'll cover the frame. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. But the twenty-eight. The twenty-eight cuts the corners. Twenty-eight vignettes. It does. And that has a bigger image circle. Yes. It's not. It's not bad, but it's not good. I'm really cheating now. I'm using my XT5 with a ten twenty-four and just cropping. <laughs> it's just <laughs> way too easy. And yeah. I, I haven't even. I haven't even made a hundred and sixty meg file with it yet. So that's that's going to be one of my next things. Yeah, that's the big deal with the Sony. You get a file in there that's it's it's a humongous file. Yeah, and you my, my, yeah, I'm chewing on those 40 megapixel XT5 files. It, it was a I, I didn't think about it when I first got it. It takes a while, and I've got a pretty good uh, computer. But. Rudy looks like he's got a zone image. He does. Yeah, those are great. I've I've, I've messed with those too. Those are the pinhole ones, aren't they? He's got a pinhole. He's got a wooden pinhole. Look like a zone image wooden pinhole. Beautiful. Patrick was holding up a Shin Hao. Was that a Shin Hao? It's a copy. It's an art, it's a KT six seventeen art art panorama. Yeah, those are those are great. They're uh, what what it is is a six by seventeen back for a four by five camera. Yeah, that is what and it is. Six by twelve and six by nine. It's got masks in it too. Oh uh, yeah. You need, a, you need a five by seven camera to hook it onto for no four by five. Four by five. Hook it on four by five. I'm, I'm going to try it. I've got a I've got a KB Canon that I'm making a back for this so I can adapt it to it because I want to try it on a five by seven, hoping that I get a little bit less because sometimes you get vignetting depending on the lens. Anthony, um, normally when we record these shows, it's his responsibility to write down all the names of the cameras that get brought up so we can include them. And uh, this is going to be a rough one for you. Well, since I'm going to be <laughs> editing it, I'll just be uh, noting them as I go. <laughs> well, you know, you guys know that for the GFX series, Fuji actually makes an adapter to fit on the back of a 4x5. Yeah, I own it. Do you? Have you I used do. it? Not yet. I, my GFX 100 system just showed up. So. Oh. Oh, I got it. Yeah, that one's been driving me. I think, oh, most people aren't even going to know. You know, younger people, they're not even going to know what to do with a view camera. Bob, so. I still have uh, a, a GX680 that I want to try to oh. adapt it to as well. Sure. Oh, um, yeah. Bunch of really good lenses. Oh, they were. Just don't, don't don't bother with the 500. It was just, it was a great lens, but it was so unwieldy, and it had to have a little uh, landing strip to roll on. I, was, I own it. You do? Oh, yeah. that's so awesome! Yeah, that was a that was a great camera. I've got an adapter that I just got. I can't remember who makes it now. It's a common one that, that I can put my my Canon on the back of my four by five, and it slides, so it'll do a little. It's not quite panoramic, but it's kind of the same. That's thing. pretty close. Photo Deox made that adapter. Oh, okay, yeah, they make some cool stuff. That's it, very. You get some really large, you know, really large images out of that. I mean, the quality is amazing. I use it for landscapes. Well, that 100S with that uh, on a view camera, that is going to be very cool. 
Absolutely. I just need time off. You know, I <laughs> just been working like a dog and be retired like me. Then you then you then you have even less time. <laughs> well, you know, real quick, I just want to say this. Um, I realize the time zone doesn't always work for you, Marwin, but I mean, feel free to come back on other shows. I mean, oh, yeah. I'd love to. Like I'd love to. It's really cool. <laughs> we like to have people on the show, even if that, that's their specialty. But you're always welcome to come back because uh, we, we geek out updates. about. <laughs> we want updates. Yeah. I mean, who knows when something's going to come back. And um, this is the whole concept of the show is we don't script anything. We have a vague idea yeah, of what I a show that. is going to be about. And yeah. I had no idea most of the people were going to be here and we get notoriously off topic, but uh, everything's <laughs> on topic here. That, that has to be like that. <laughs> Andrew, did you have any questions from Marwan? Yeah. So I was wondering, um, do you have any sort of like uh, time frame on when the, the sort of wide left revival might be available? Yes. Yes. I mean, at the moment, what we are doing is we are, as I said, we are in the middle of the prototyping phase. Uh, that means it, it is followed by a stress test. We think in November we are about to do that. The stress test means that the camera has to, the prototype has to undergo 100,000 or 150,000 releases, um, shutter releases. So, and then uh, we'll find out where are the weak points uh, of our construction. And we try to fix that. And then uh, immediately from that point, uh, we will start uh, a pre-sales uh, announcement the, it is not really a, a typical Kickstarter project because the entire research and design and prototyping is done by our, uh, is financed before. So it's not that typical project where you say, okay, uh, we want to make a camera. We have never made one. Uh, give us money and we'll do it. And maybe it's it's working or not. So uh, the moment we have a reliable 100% working camera that we can give warranty on, then uh, we're going to announce that. And I think it, in around November, uh, we know uh, the precise or more precise schedule. But uh, at the moment on silvergrandclassics.com, we have a special uh, section um, before widelux.com goes online. Um, that is going to happen also during this year. But at the moment, you can find uh, updates and you can find information about that project all the time. We also started a, a gallery. So we also invite, or we would love to invite photographers who are photographing with swing lens cameras um, to show their work. So with that being said, is it going to be sort of a pre-order only where there's a limited window and you're only going to make a limited number? Or is it going to be sort of ongoing production? It's it will be an ongoing production. So uh, as long as people want that camera, we'll make it. Um, and uh, we have to see. I mean, it's a niche market in that niche of analog photography. But um, I mean, the we were involved in that Leica M6 release. And uh, so far as I know, you have to wait at least one year until you get your model. Although Leica increased their production around factor ten, so and they cannot hold up with that. So. We think that this camera, people will like it. Um, but as I said, after the summer, just just have a look into it. Um, what we wanted to do with that announcement this time was to show the community something's happening. We are working on that. And we were two and a half years working on that project. And we had to keep silence uh, because of wow. trademark issues and all that stuff, you know, and uh, we didn't want to promise too much because we want to make a feasibility study that it works and we know it will work. 
that's the reason why we went uh, out with yeah. That's that, what will drive the sales. Reliability will do that. Yeah. Yeah. So Marwan, with with that, I mean, one of the things that struck me with with this project is it's not the usual 3D printed box where people put their own lenses on and there's not anything really moving or doing or anything like that. It, it's, it, this is a much more complicated camera. I mean, it's got a swing mechanism. Mm -hmm. It's got all sorts of things like that. Have you thought about in terms of, and I'm sure you have, but uh, have you thought about in terms of how the cameras would be serviced? Uh, yes. Are they going to be, um, yes. I mean, you, know, you mentioned warranty, but obviously they'll need service yes. across the world. Is yes. there a manufacturer behind it that's going to be able to do yes. that? Yes, yes, yes. We have that already. Um, the um, the uh, As I said, we, we founded, a, we are the manufacturer in Bad Kreuznach directly. We founded a company to do that. And uh, there will be a service and maintenance place. And uh, our plan is also to train uh, in different uh, parts of the world specialists who can do that, uh, let's say, on the U.S. Uh, or the American continent, uh, uh, in Asia, Australia, and Europe. So there's definitely there are definitely plans for that. Oh, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. That's, by the way, also, Australia. Jeff, um, by, the, by the way, I have to say a little bit, um, one of the points Jeff wanted, that we do not use any plastic or plastic at, at if necessary uh yes but if technically necessary but uh the the little as possible and um his idea behind that was that he wants to have a camera that stands generations so that you can hand it over to your son or daughter or whatever you know it, it's kind of like we want to have something sustainable and uh, it should really last and that's the idea behind that also that's what'll sell it then too. And that's one of the points. I mean, if you, I mean, you know, Jeff, uh, he's well known, and he's definitely someone who thinks about environment and and how we have to save our resources and stuff like that. So that's part of the idea of this construction. Well, it's good to hear that it seems like you have a lot of base discovery because I've seen a lot of uh, other projects kind of pop up on Kickstarter and like not go anywhere and even stuff like that new Pentex camera it seems like they're really kind of winging it and I'm kind of disappointed that they haven't really released any details or anything so there's one thing about that uh, wide locks which made us very happy about it is that we don't have a classic shutter. The shutter is for nearly all camera projects so far. If it, there was that reflex camera and they all failed about the shutter. Uh, because at the end of the day, if you just want to have a production, the shutter should not cost more than five to 10 euros. We were talking about this just the, in a private chat. You know, I said that that's one of the things this has going for it is the yeah. lack of a traditional shutter. I mean, that's, yes. I mean, anybody could make a, a twin blade one two hundredth of a second simple plastic shutter. Yes. But when people talk about a new Pentax or Nikon re-resuming production of the F6, let's just say, mm -hmm. to produce a modern shutter with modern assembly lines and costs and parts and distribution has got to be astronomically high. And the yeah. uh, if someone wanted to reintroduce the X-Pan, they'd have that same problem. But the, the wide lux with the swing lens you know, I don't want to oversimplify it, but the lack of all those parts yes. 
has exactly. really working in your favor. And yeah. I, I can't imagine, I'm not good at keeping secrets. I can't imagine having to keep this under wraps <laughs> for two and a half years, but yeah, I think that it, was, it was really a, hard. Yeah. Well, it was a smart decision. Cause I tell you what, if you would have announced this in 2020, like, yeah, we're going to bring back the wide lux. You're yeah. going to a year later, you're going to be the bane of existence. Everybody's going to think it's vaporware when in reality, that's just how long this stuff takes. And you're to the point where you're actually printing prototype pieces you're months away from having something to show and do some um stress testing and such like that too so uh, i commend you for having the, the the ability to keep your mouth quiet about it for as long as you did yeah. the, the thing is we don't want to promise things we cannot hold and that was one of the reasons a lot of people said oh we need more shutter speeds we need focus and all that stuff uh we need another winding mechanism we don't want to do that in the first step because uh, the the worst thing is to to introduce failure possibilities and uh, and then you just get the warranty uh, situation of tomorrow and then uh, people are losing trust in it. So the idea is to keep it as close to the original. Yeah, we're just going to see what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, Marwin, does in the original Wide Lux or in, in, in your version, is it a is it just the speed of the drum that changes the exposure? Is it will be the same thing. Uh, you know that with the horizon, for example, you just have right. two speeds. You have the slow and and you are just changing the slit size. Right, right. Yeah? Our system will have the same escapement uh, like uh, the original wide locks. So we have three speeds. So it's a 150s, 125th, and a 250 of a second uh, speed, like the like the F8. There is nothing, nothing is going to change. What right. we try to improve is this don't change the shutter speed before you want the camera we're yeah. going to to work on that so that it is um the operational safety is is higher and um coming back to the story of uh, is it feasible or the feasibility study what we made if you if you see the the wide locks the f8 has approximately 100 parts that's it that's it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not counting washers and screws and all that stuff, but for big parts, we're talking about 100 parts on average. And uh, we're talking if we if we take a like take a Leica R4 or R5, we're talking about 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 thousand parts and let's, even let's more. take a Contorex. <laughs> oh, Contorex, yeah, yeah, exactly. Please. <laughs> well, twelve hundred, I think, or fifteen hundred parts, and so um, the the that was one of the things where we just after we counted the parts, we said this is doable. It is doable, yeah. and uh, the only thing is we have to see it, it's more a clockwork mechanism than a camera, and and that makes this camera really an interesting. Also, from the from the engineering point of view, um, and because it was made in this small amount of numbers back then we can adapt that easily to modern production methods that are designed for smaller production numbers so um still spring wound yeah the same thing we don't put any electricity in it there's no motor in that you know highland electronics the split grade controller company well, we talked with one company in Wetzlar. They uh, they did um, and, and for some kind of ideas to share, and they told us they would like to make it electric. And immediately Jeff said, "No, I don't want it. I want to have a mechanical camera," and and I think that's what people also want. Nobody wants 
an electric driven camera where you put rechargeable batteries in there. And that's why we decided on a mechanical system. But there's your tagline too. Your tagline is it's like clockwork. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And we definitely need watchmaker um, um, skills uh, because even if you have the design, and that's what I also learned by when we talked uh, to all these camera manufacturers, they said, you know, even if you have that design done on your drawing board, um, you have to have a watchmaker who has to take a look on it to say, look, this wheel will not turn as it should. So you have to, you have to, you have to grind here uh, an edge there and stuff like that so that it works. So these are the, this is the fine tuning they have to do, and that needs skills. The good thing is that we have these skills here around in the circle of twenty or thirty kilometers around Wetzlar. So that's not a big deal. You can just drive down to Glashuta and uh, and talk to the watch guys <laughs> down there. I'm sure they'll. <laughs> yes. I want to kind of start winding down. Um, I don't want to occupy too much of your guys' time, but one thing we like to do uh, on most episodes is a lightning round where we'll go through, I'll ask a question and you guys give an answer. Um, so this is fantasy world here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's one camera that's ever been made from, you know, a daguerreotype to whatever, everything's on the table. But if, if you could pick one camera that you wanted to see brought back, whether it's silver grain classics or whoever, what, what would be your one camera that you'd like to see brought back besides the wide lux, of course. Uh, Marwan, I'll, I'll start with you. What's a camera you would love to see brought back by somebody? Well, the Minolta XM motor. XM motor, okay. Oh, Dean. Yeah. Dean, what about you? Mm. Oh, I would honestly say if they could, it would be an X-Pen, but a mechanical X-Pen. <laughs> X-Pen. A mechanical one. Mecha- mechanical X. So, so a fantasy X pan, but I, I like where you're going. Total, with this total one. fantasy X pan. All right, Paul. I'd have to go with a Makina 67. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Folder. Ray. Bobble 67. Yeah. Same same as Paul. Another one. Richard. Yeah, I'd jump in again with uh, Makina. I think that's uh, 6.7. Sure. Patrick. The GW 690. GW 690. Ooh, Fuji. Okay. Another good one. Uh, Mark Faulkner. The Miranda that works. <laughs> any miranda there you go <laughs> the older the miranda the the more of a chance you have of it working but that's right. still not even a guarantee theo and you cannot say the mamiya seven mamiya oh, two. <laughs> the mamiya eight the mamiya eight there you go oh they throw me now that's not fair what? you're like the 10th person we asked <laughs> yeah but i was gonna want a new mamiya seven that's, that's, that's actually the room built you took away that golden ticket he has. But yeah, I, I actually wouldn't mind a Makina in that case too. Okay. Rudy? Well, since I come out from uh, the X-Band experience and never have had a chance to shoot with it, I would agree with having a reliable X-Band. <laughs> <laughs> that would be nice, even if I could shoot it once. Bob? I guess I wish I had my uh, uh, GX617 with all the lenses back. That was fun. Okay. Andrew? I think I'd go with a Nikon FM3A. I know that one's a little newer. There you go. It's a great camera. I mean, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Pentex LX was a hell of a system too. Remember that? Yeah, yeah, those are great. I love that the LX. Uh, Anthony, I am going to go with the Panon 120 swing lens panoramic camera, which I'm hoping nice. that that Marwan is also taking apart and measuring. <laughs> and, and... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can we could call it then the King Kong, uh, <laughs> Jeff Bridges. <laughs> I was going to ask if these are going to be called bridge cameras. Bridge cameras. <laughs> 
Uh, and then for me, I, and I, I'm glad uh, Anthony didn't pick it, but I'm going to go Kodak with the medalist. I'd love to see a new medalist. I love that thing. Hey, I just I just picked up a box, not the camera, but the box for a Bantam special at an estate sale. Wow. The box is even gorgeous. So, Mike, probably, I mean, I like Square. So I think that the Mamiya the Mia 6, not the old 6, the, the one predecessor to the 7, given that it's Square. The MF, the one, with, the multi-format one. I almost said the Super Iconta 6x6. Oh, nice camera. I, I do have one more camera I want to talk about today because we're talking about panoramics. And, you know, one thing that no one's talked about is the actual panorama wide pick. Mm. Oh. Yeah, which is... Focus-free. <laughs> Focus-free. Um, it's fantastic. It's dedicated panorama. And yeah, Marwin, I'm happy to swap one for one of the new wide lights. <laughs> yeah. You know, when it comes out, because it, it really, you yes, know, this is a dedicated panorama. It's an optical lens, I believe, too, hasn't it? Yeah. Optical yeah. lens, Theo? Yes, focus free optical lens. It's got like a, you know, it's got like a lens cover and everything. Ooh. Well, we'll make a better deal. Can't make a better deal. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, Minolta, I, I briefly mentioned earlier, Minolta had that that uh, Vista view. Paul, what's it actually called? Uh, we call it the Vista. Uh, in Australia and Europe, it's called something else. Isn't it the P? The P. In Indonesia, it's the P. And China it's, uh, and Japan, it's the P. What's, what's yeah. different about that camera, so they made a ton, especially in the 90s. For some reason, I don't know why, in the yeah. 90s, everybody, even Nikon was doing this in some of their SLRs, where they'd make a mask that would just drop down in the film gate, and it would yeah, chop off. Right? Yeah, it, it's, instead of a 24 by 36, you'd get 18 by 36. Yep. Um, but those were all full-frame cameras. It just Mark's got the Visco wide. That's what I was going to ask. That. That's the coolest thing ever. The Visco wide, the 16-millimeter swing lens. Yeah. I remember dealing with the mini lab owners who had to buy all those adapters to print the panoramas that people got. And then they gave them great big prints and the people did not understand what they were getting. And man, was it expensive. You shoot a 36 exposure roll panoramas and you got a $40 bill. That's right. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, oh man. God, people would hit the roof. Really, Paul, Paul, is that true? They charge more for them? Sure. Yeah. We well, were doing big prints. Bigger prints. You had a six by, what was six by 10? Yeah, no, yeah. four four by ten. Four, four by, by ten. Four by Greens. ten and flat. Yeah. Wait, and that's and and that's from a sixteen millimeter camera. Uh, no, that was from from thirty five millimeter. Thirty five, and and remember, some of those APS cameras had that too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Four yeah. by six, four by seven, four by ten. Yeah, people were very surprised. We haven't spoken about is that a lot of labs will charge you extra to do your scans for expand for wide lux. If yes. you're not doing it at home, luckily these days, if you are using home kits um lightroom and photoshop the merging system that they have developed with ai now is so phenomenal i put together those six seventeen images in three batches and you can get incredible the merge is all is incredible it's seamless but a lot of labs i think as the proliferation of um, some of the wider formats are coming back some of the labs are willing to do the scans without extra cost but a lot that's another extra additional problem with panoramics is it's an extra cost in in lab form and getting your scans done getting and some of the um, masks some of the companies these days don't have those masks anymore a good tip that i found when if you're uh if you develop yourself and you scan at home with a flatbed scanner um instead of buying expensive adapters and masks and stuff um a cheap hack is to go to like target or, or a store and get like a, a five by seven or an eight by ten just a plain jane glass photo frame and take out the glass and sandwich your negative between the two pieces of glass uh, and then put it on your flatbed 
um, I take electrical tape and just wrap it around the edges of the glass so that I don't scratch the surface of my scanner. Don't you get Newton rings? No. Uh, people have asked me that before. I don't. And I don't be, understand though. why. I don't. You're probably using non-reflective. You probably have that that anti-reflective it glass. Must, yeah. That'll reduce that. This is how I do it. I have three pieces of plate glass taped together yeah. the edges with uh, tape. Exactly. Put, That's what I, I do it, too. I put it right on the platin and I yep. can, and I, because it creates a tiny little gap, there's enough that I don't get any Newton rings. Nope. I can do X paint, six by 12s. I can do everything. I do 127 film. Uh, I can do 110. Even when I get some really expired 35 millimeter that curls so badly that it won't sit in the, the holder, I can just put it in there and then it flattens it. You stick it right on the scanner. And because it's resting on another piece of glass, it's raised because the, the actual focal point on a flatbed scanner is slightly above the surface. That's why you can't just lay film on the glass. It, you know it what's blurry. funny? I've got a I've got an Epson V800 and I just tape them to the glass and for whatever reason it's able to change the it, focus. It does. Point. Oh, okay. absolutely. I I'm so I'm a Neanderthal. I just tape it down with Scotch tape. Yeah, Patrick, okay. I put those. I, I put mine right on the plaque. I've told that to to many people, and the question is always, well, don't you get Newton rings? And I don't. And it works. I think it's one of those things that's so simple. You know, kiss, keep it simple, stupid that people overthink it and they don't realize that if you have a flatbed scanner, just put it on the scanner and don't use a frame at all. Don't get me wrong. It's a very slow process. Yeah, You're going to yeah. be doing a lot of cropping and rotating and stuff, depending on what scanning program you use. But uh, it's, a, it's a good option. There's one thing I would suggest that you have to do is load Ektachrome in your um, panoramic camera and uh, project it really with a six by six projector put it in a frame, make some kind of tape on it, mask it. You cannot believe what kind of images you get. Ektachrome is such a wonderful material. And Don't especially, tell me that. Don't yeah. tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really amazing. Anybody shooting E6, if you're not having AGX imaging up in Sault Ste. Marie uh, process it for you, you're missing the boat. That guy does the best, most exact to the Kodak Z manual E6 processing known to the world. It's called AGX, so it's like silver. AGX Imaging. The guy's name is Mike Lucier. He used to run A&I's uh, E6 labs out in California. And his father-in-law wanted him to move back home with his daughter and kids, and he wanted to get out of L.A., so he's got the biggest Refrima dip and dunk. His motto from the start was the best and the last. And I said, what's that mean? He goes, I'm going to do the best E6 even when I'm the last person doing E6. Cool. And he and he does scans and he does really good scans. So look him up and just tell him I recommend you because he's just a great guy and you will not get bad film back from this guy. I'll, I'm going to do that. I've done my own and had good results. I mean, I've got five by seven E6 and I do my own because I've got a, a a Jobo with the drum, but and it turns out pretty good. But every once in a while, the, the Japanese hated the Jobos, they said this film was never designed for constant agitation. And so they wouldn't even, they wouldn't even work with those guys because Jobo was in Ann Arbor and they would, it took us, took me six years to get them to work with Jobo to get standards. Mm -hmm. Fuji did all the R&D and Kodak chemistry so that when it got here, there wasn't going to be a problem because we didn't want to make chemistry. So Mike is just an amazing guy and he's doing great work. Check him out anyway. He's not cheap, but you won't get bad film. Quality yeah, isn't cheap. Yeah. Uh, and tell them Bob sent you. But um, I want to yeah. thank everybody for coming on the show. Marwen is awesome to have you on. Um, it I, was really I, a pleasure and it was cool. <laughs> I, I loved hearing about the project. Um, you know, it, it, go subscribe. 
if, well, like and subscribe. <laughs> yeah, we, we're going to have the discount code posted. Uh, this show, it's going to take a, at least a week to get edited before it's out there, but we'll get it shared to the Facebook group um, if we want to get some more people to take advantage of that. Uh, I, I think I speak for everybody either here and future listeners that we're excited to hear updates about the project and see how it comes along. Uh, once it does come along, whatever you guys have planned next, I'm sure it's going to be something awesome. Feel free to come back on any future show we record usually every other week. Uh, the concept is exactly the same. Uh, thank you for everybody else. Rudy, it's awesome to finally get you on the show. Uh, Bob, uh, Paul's talked about you a number of times, so it's great to have you back. Ray, Richard, Skip, uh, Mark, it's always great to have you. Andrew, um, we for our next show, it's going to be in two weeks. The, the topic is loosely going to be unobtainium cameras which we inadvertently was this episode. I think almost everything has been unobtainium. Um, I have so, a few. <laughs> so maybe it'll be unobtainium chapter two, uh, other things of, of any kind of formats. But um, as always, the topics and discussions on the Camerosity podcast are decided entirely by you. As we've witnessed many, many times, just because we say we're going to talk about something doesn't mean we end up doing that. Uh, that's the show's biggest strength and its biggest weaknesses, but I'll take it. Um, so thanks everybody. You guys all have a great night and I look forward to talking to you all again. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Bye everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to episode 52 of the, wait, it is 52, right? <laughs> that is, okay. <laughs> but believe me, believe me, it's it's excellent. I love that, what you're talking here about. That's kind of like, like drugs. Uh, it keeps me awake. <laughs>